Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I don't like taking time off. (laughs) (laughs) I get anxiety about how much shit goes on when we're gone. (laughs) Stupid holidays ruining everything. Uh, Thanksgiving, having to talk to people. Turkeys. Turkeys. Yeah. I don't need that crap. I just want to be here talking with you guys and drinking beer. <laughs> Hi, guys. Welcome back. It's Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hi, Phil. Um, and we are lucky enough to have uh, senior legal analyst, uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, with us again as well. Hi, Tom. Great to be here on Constitution on the Hill Day. Yes. <laughs> Turns out there's a whole Congress full of people that really love the Constitution. They, they brought their pocket. <laughs> they brought it. Yes. I yes. can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. Yes. They're on handwritten versions with, with <laughs> notes and things crossed out and whatnot. Um, anyways, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, anything like that. Follow us on Twitter at uh, Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, The podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, And if you guys haven't uh, followed any of those platforms recently, we also have a merch line now, too. What? (laughs) (laughs) Phil was just, or Phil, uh, Bill was just showing me um, one of the hoodies. It looks really good. It's super comfortable, Nick. It's light, uh, it's fashionable. I could wear it anywhere. <laughs> I hear there's a mouse pad with Phil's face on it. Run your mouse over all day. Is that, do I have that right? No, we're going to put like, the Phil I like that idea. Expand yeah, yeah. the merchandise the, line. The Phil and Bernie yeah, that's picture together That's would be it. a great mouse pad. Yeah. Yeah. Put me as number one to buy that one. Um, I think there's a, we have a mug on there with our, our original logo. We have a, our, uh, our human fish uh, coexist t-shirt on there with a little peace sign on it. It's, it's, that's it's a really fun. smart one, Nick. I like that t-shirt. <laughs> you got to think about it a little bit. Think about it. Um, so yeah, definitely check it out. We were trying to find a direct, like if you just search for it's on Teespring. Um, I was looking to see if there was a direct way to get there from Google. Um, go through social media. We put the links up pretty regularly. So go through there. Um, yeah, that's just the easiest way to find it. There's a bunch of different things. Um, so definitely check it out. Um, we always appreciate the support. Um, and they're reasonably priced, Nick. Reasonably we, I mean, we have, we have, you know, good quality, fair price. All of it. All of it. It's win, win, win. Fair trade. Yep. <laughs> Direct trade. We are those right. people now. Um, God. Uh, Soy uh, based ink. <laughs> it's the only way to go. No. It's actually made of pure whale oil, which is pretty <laughs> rare now, but we thought it was worth it. Um, 
uh, we haven't we haven't done this since we did the uh, the, the, the live show, show a couple yeah. weeks ago. Which thank you for everybody who who came out and oh. and supported. It was a tremendous amount of fun. Um, we we're definitely going to do more of those. Um, Tom, you were great. Suzanne was great. Um, yeah, what it was. About, what it about was just me, a lot Nick? of fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. You too. Mediocre <laughs> were the reviews. <laughs> the only part people liked is when you tried to push me off the stage. <laughs> That lit up Twitter, I hear. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, again, thank you, guys. Um, we're definitely going to do more. So just keep your eye out for that. Stay tuned or whatever the hell you say now. Do people tune things anymore? I don't no, because there's do. no more radios. Nick. Well, it's yeah. so sad. Yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah, like you said, it's Con Lawn Day. We have Tom here. Bill, can you give us a breakdown of what we're going to be talking about for our big topic? Absolutely. So Wednesday was Bring Your Con Law Professor to Work Day at the Congress. The House Judiciary Committee brought in four constitutional scholars to testify about the constitutional grounds for impeachment, and in particular, whether the president's conduct is worthy of impeachment and removal from office. Chairman Jerry Nadler and the Democrats called Noah Feldman, a Harvard law professor, uh, Pamela Carlin, a law professor at Stanford, and Michael Zitgerhart, a law professor at the University of North Carolina, Republicans brought in Jonathan Turley, a law professor at George Washington University. It was a fascinating clash over the Constitution and how we should interpret Trump's behavior. Given all that, we decided to bring our constitutional law professor to the podcast. Tom, I know you love I know you had a chance to watch uh, part of the testimony today. Why don't you start us off with some preliminary reactions? Well, I didn't watch. I listened. <laughs> Lawyers have silver tongues and ugly faces. So I decided uh, better to hear them than than see them. Um yeah, a, a few things. Uh, the first is um, these were the real deal, and and I think you know sometimes lost in this whole uh, uh, congressional circus uh, are serious, thoughtful, well prepared, well spoken people. And I think anybody who listened would agree that all four of them were that. Um, they're they're experts. They had enormous understanding. Um, three disagreed with one, but but in ways that I thought you know, sort of adopted the principles of this podcast. They could talk to each other and not be hostile and mean and aggressive. Uh, I was impressed. That said, I think there was a lot of smoke and not a lot of fire. Uh, That is, there wasn't, not that I think people thought there probably would be some enormous revelation or some radical or novel way of interpreting uh, high crimes and misdemeanors or that sort of thing. So I I don't know that that's surprising, but Anybody who listened got a deeper understanding of what's happening here and uh, a, a better way of thinking about the language that's being adopted. And that, that felt right to me. I, I note as a sidelight that it becomes clear that uh, the Ukraine phone call might not be the only thing that's part of the articles of impeachment. And that was sort of an interesting side note to this. There's uh, clearly movement towards obstruction and there's uh, clearly movement toward abuse of power in addition to uh, the question of bribery, which we might want to come back to because there was a really interesting conversation about bribery. Um, uh, let me just make three observations and see which one triggers a, a little conversation. The first is that I was struck by the fact as I listened to uh, Jerry Nadler, among others, start uh, that everybody now loves the founders <laughs> and loves my beloved constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I beat them to loving the Constitution, needless to say. Uh, But uh, who can't love Jerry Nadler in his opening statement saying, we begin with the text? Now, of course, that's where I begin. Jerry Nadler never began with the text until today. Uh, And and, and yet I think that's a a sort of an interesting thing. We we talked at the live show about focus grouping the word 
uh, or phrase quid pro quo, um, you know, I think they have figured out that the American people want a genuine, legitimate, meaningful constitutional grounds for impeachment. So we're going to the framers and we're going to the text. Uh, so I think it would be interesting to talk about uh, about that for a bit. In fact, there was even one exchange where somebody said, essentially, when God asks, what did you do under these circumstances? The answer was what the framers oh. would have hoped I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> My heart skipped a beat, as you might imagine. (laughs) Uh, Two other quick ones. There's still very deep disagreement about what the word bribery means. And uh, Professor Turley gave a completely different understanding of it. Um, I I thought both sides were persuasive. I thought both sides provided uh, thoughtful uh, case law. Um, I don't think either side won. Mm -hmm. And and I think we're still left with an open question. Is it a bribe? And and we push this question around uh, among one another. Um, the third is, is that there's still deep disagreement about what it means to engage in obstruction. And uh, I, I raise this one in part because I've sort of made the argument on this podcast that it is not obstruction to go to the courts to ask them to interpret the law, including but not limited to whether to enforce a subpoena or not. And uh, I thought a pretty compelling case was made today that um, Congress goes down a dangerous route if their position is that when the president uses the courts to make a judgment about whether a subpoena, for example, should be uh, enforced, uh, that is obstruction of an inquiry. Uh, I, I feel very strongly that it's not, and, and I think it subverts the system. Having said that, uh, I realize there's some other dimensions that might also constitute obstruction, but, but I thought that was a really interesting part of the conversation. So why don't I, uh, yeah. it was deeply problematic, I think, is uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. telling somebody not to go to court. That'll be the next year. It, it, that's on one that. of our mugs, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> deeply problematic, right under Phil in a picture with <laughs> Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I mean, so that's a few. I, we could also talk about Rudy Giuliani's in Europe today, making a documentary film that is meant to... Uh, I, I guess debunk uh, the whole impeachment process, which will only make things worse. There's <laughs> exactly. no doubt about that. Yeah, and, and on, on the uh, he doesn't have a silver tongue, but he sure has an ugly face. I th- I'm just going to use him as Exhibit A of why you listen to lawyers instead of watch them. Well, you've you've said in the past that lawyers should shut up. Yes. Does documentaries fit into that, or is that an ex- you know a, can you can you make a documentary and still be a good lawyer? It's an excellent point. And the question is, uh, what's the topic of it? Who's making it, and for what purpose? Uh, I guess that's three questions. Uh, and uh, Rudy Giuliano's, uh, Giuliani's approach would fail all three. Yeah. <laughs> He's making it yeah. strike one. Yeah. Its purpose is to debunk a congressional here, strike two. Uh, and three, he's the president's personal yeah. lawyer. So let's just go back to he should shut his mouth. That's right. I think anyway, can, so that's a bunch of thoughts. So we can dive into some of the issues you raised. But the, one of the first things you said was, you know, watching today. So Turley, who was the, the Republican choice for lawyers, I thought he was fascinating, right? And it felt like, to me, he elevated the conversation. Um, and I didn't always agree with his interpretations, so and we can talk about bribery and all of that, but it felt to me like this is the kind of conversation the country should be having about the Constitution, about Trump's behavior. In his opening statement, he talked about how he is not a Trump fan, right. how he didn't vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, in some ways, he discredited the, the look into Hunter Biden. He just said, let's look at the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that 
very exciting. And and my fear is that I don't think this is going to sell. I don't think it's going to get much of attention. You know, I don't know if the news, this whole panel or, or the Turley part of it, the Turley part of it. Yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I, I think you, you're, you're making the point why it will get attention. I think it was an elevated discussion, but at the same time, he's going, <coughs> the case as it exists right now is, and to, to quote him, is wafer thin for uh, to move forward with impeachment. He's and he he made the point in saying that doesn't mean that there isn't evidence out there that that you know would would change the narrative would change the the outcome of the situation. But as the Democrats are are putting it forward now, this is not a case that should be winnable. He pretty much said, gather more evidence, take more time, and this this could very well change. And I think that is. That's an extremely powerful thing from a, a, a Republican f- a witness, for lack of a better term. So, can, I, can I ask a couple of questions? So I didn't get to see any of it today. I was I was uh, busy with other things. But um, the, the the conversation about Turley that, that y'all are having raises a couple of questions for me. Um, one of which is so Turley also testified for the during the Clinton impeachment, arguing that there was enough and arguing that no actual you know criminal statute had to be violated, that essentially, you know, losing the trust of the American people is enough um, that if people have lost faith, you know, so he, he had it, what felt like in some ways a different standard then. Um, I, I'm wondering, did he talk about like, is, is it just the 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 amount of evidence? Is that the thing that he is upset about? Or is he actually so can you reconcile the argument that he made then with the argument he's making now? And then my other question is I, the other part I didn't get to see is is the but I, I saw people talking about it. The, the way the Republican. So he was the Republican witness. Right. And they were asking him questions. I I. I tend to imagine that they didn't necessarily do themselves any favors, but they've, they've taken this sort of theatrical approach to the questioning of witnesses. Um, and it seems like they could have used that moment to really strengthen their argument. Do, do you feel like they did that or not? Congress is all about uh, theater mm-hmm. and circus. I, I'm just thinking here of the Kavanaugh hearings. This has become the norm in, in Congress to you're right. There were motions to table, motions to uh, uh, delay, motions for um, new witnesses. Uh, it, it felt like a circus. But in some ways, I, that prompted in me the thought, there's four adults in the room, and, and eventually mm-hmm. we're going to hear from them. And when we did, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if these four were, irrespective of what side you're on, no one could hear them and say they're like the people on the other side uh, of the, the table. Um to, to the first question, I, I have to say, I did not go back and refresh my memory about what was said during the Clinton hearings, but what was said today uh, uh, by, by Turley was, was a sort of a twofold thing. The first is, this is the fastest impeachment in history, mm-hmm. and fast is bad. But the second was, this is the first impeachment in history that does not involve an allegation of criminal wrongdoing. And uh, he, he quickly said, you don't have to have one. Mm-hmm. And we've said that on the podcast repeatedly. But... I thought he made a pretty compelling case for the idea that the presence of one, and in particular, proving specific elements of a statutory crime, uh, in Clinton's case, it was perjury, uh, raises the level of seriousness and produces a kind of evidence and interchange that is different than saying, and he sort of, the one place he seemed almost to be putting, uh, putting down an argument was when he said, just saying, well, this is an impeachment, not a criminal trial, is not an excuse 
for not having concrete evidence, specific elements, and proof of those elements. So, so I don't know if that reconciles with what yeah. he said during the Clinton hearing. I have to be honest. I didn't go back and read that, but that was the argument today. So it seems like there's a, there's an abundance of crimes, of criminal statutes that the Democrats could point to. They could talk about the emolument. I mean, that's not criminal, but they could, I mean, I guess it is. That you could point to specific legal statutes that have been violated. Um, so, I mean, is he essentially arguing that that's why this should be a wider, longer, more expansive process? One of the more interesting things was the speed issue. So I think maybe speed and obstruction, that may be a good way of getting at this. Yeah. He talked about that, you know, to your earlier point, that we, Tom, we should let the courts do their work. Mm-hmm. Don't abuse power as the Congress to, to counteract abuse of power mm-hmm. by the presidency. Let the, let the courts weigh in. And that was part of his argument for time. Now, it was interesting because – the time issue is it, it gets tied up in the political process. And it, somebody, people were on Twitter all today talking about the fact that it's been 71 days since Pelosi announced the impeachment inquiry uh, to today. It was 72 days from when the Republicans did it for Clinton and then fully impeached him. So time is sort of a, a relative thing. Right, it's, I think, right. hard to measure yes. that. But the obstruction of justice argument he made today, Turley made today, was really fascinating. And he mm-hmm. was talking about that this idea of saying that Trump is obstructing justice by not recognizing the subpoenas or, or pushing them through the court system. He was arguing that that is not an impeachable offense. Well, he went further than that. He said it's an abuse of power by Congress to use the, the tool of impeachment to compel the president to not use Article Three courts to address unanswered legal questions. And I, I, this has been the case I've or the, the, the argument I've made here before. These are not settled legal questions. This is not Nixon all over again. This is a very different set of cases, or I should say issues. That case doesn't control on all of them. And for Congress to say that a president, for that matter, for Congress to say any American citizen shouldn't have access to the courts to adjudicate questions of law that are this important and this widely uh, disagreed about, um, well, his position was that was abuse of congressional power. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm ready to go quite that far, but I but I would certainly say I don't know that you can make a good faith argument that the president isn't entitled to have Congress. I'm sorry, courts make judgments about subpoenas and he among argue, other things. And he argued that he felt that way about the Nixon impeachment as well, or mm-hmm. potential impeachment. He was saying that that was. He also suggested that that was problematic. That they should have let that play out mm-hmm. fully through the courts as yeah. well. Look, no one says in a criminal trial if Bill Muck is on trial for murder. Uh, and a motion is made to bring evidence in, uh, and and you don't produce it. No one says, well, we're going to hold you in contempt of court. What they say is, let's let an appellate court make a judgment about whether or not the trial court's ruling is correct. And then if the trial court uh, ruling is held to be correct, you might appeal beyond that. And so when your court of last resort says, Bill, produce the evidence, if you then don't, now there's a problem, and now you're in contempt of court. But no one takes the position that an original uh, question, yet unanswered, unexamined by the courts, isn't one you should even ask. And this Other puts, than, it seems to me, yeah. if the Democrats press forward with an obstruction charge on these grounds. And they're, they're in a bind because they're thinking about the time <clears throat> of the impeachment and the election, all of this. So they want this to move more quickly so that they're, you know, they're not dealing with an electoral system. Is that a good strategy? I mean, there's an argument to be made that dragging it out and taking longer and taking this into the election could actually be good for Democrats. Right. 
I think so. Well, I, the more you talk about this, the more that it's, you know, day to day, drip, drip, drip. That was Nixon. Nick, you were. No, I, I mean, we, we talked about it during the live event. We've already seen some uh, evidence that support for impeachment is starting to decline uh, minutely. But that doesn't mean that that won't continue. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place at this point. You either have to move forward with what you have now and risk going to the Senate and most likely losing and having all of this be for nothing or wait longer and lose public support. Right. And I'm not sure there's a good balance between the two. I'm not sure how they're going to work that out. So, I mean, that that, that can that can take us back to the first point you made, Tom, because when you were talking about how, uh, you know, the the discussion of framers and how Democrats seem to want to be making this constitutional argument about uh, impeachment, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence about how you convince someone on the other side of the political aisle from you. Um, and the tendency is, you know, we tend to make the arguments that are convincing or compelling to us, which oftentimes are not compelling yeah. to the other side. Yeah. So if Democrats just get up there and just make an argument, essentially, that, you know, this is awful and, and they're they're just preaching to the choir, then they do lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so we come back to this this notion that that people can't be swayed. And, and I, I think people can be swayed, but I think the way you sway people is not by making the argument to the base, but by making the argument to people who aren't already compelled by what they've seen. And that is where I think that that could be a really smart stra- – I think it's, it is a smart strategy by Democrats to basically go back to let's look at the basics of what the founders meant by impeachment and does this meet that criteria? Because the people who are convinced are convinced, right? And it's the people who are not sure yet. They haven't been convinced by arguments up to this point. I, I, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. It's a, it's a terrific point. Um, uh, in some ways, I guess I was uh, maybe being a little bit more glib about Nadler and Democrats all of a sudden falling in love with uh, the framers <laughs> in the Constitution. Because, you know, look, one of the things we're going to talk about later in this podcast is the Second Amendment case in front of the Supreme Court. Does anybody think that Jerry Nadler is going to start a conversation about uh, possession and uh, transport of handguns by saying a thing like, at least we're, we're going to start with the text? <laughs> or we're gonna, uh, the answer is no one yeah. does. Having said that, though, I, I, it's a, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the argument you make, Phil, that, that here's, here's an effort to say to people, if what you value is the Constitution and the framers' interpretation of it, set aside for the moment that we hate each other, and let's ask whether or not the framers meant these kinds of behaviors to produce impeachment. Reasonable people might be able to disagree about that, but maybe it is an appeal to being a reasonable person. I, I, I it, it, it's a really nice way of thinking differently about um, what could feel like real hypocrisy. But, I mean, the text and the founders are exceptionally vague on mm-hmm. what we're talking in terms of impeachable offenses. It's high crimes and misdemeanors and what a handful of other th- bribery and, and treason. 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 Yeah. Um, how, how do you interpret that for an audience that. You know, I mean, the the text mm-hmm. itself is vague. How do you interpret that for people mm-hmm. who don't really have a concept of that mm-hmm. or a, a a an in depth understanding of what that could potentially mean? Mm-hmm. I, I 
I'm not sure that you can, but. Well, I mean, it's all mushy, right? I mean, that's the, that's, right. uh, like, it is vague, but, uh, you know, you, we've, you know, we all sort of disagree or are on different sides of this, but, it, you know, it's mushy, but, you know, I feel like, well, it, it obviously, this without a doubt meets the standard. And, and, and you, Nick, feel like this has, this hasn't reached the standard of impeachment. And, you know, we've talked about whether or not criminal, but that's where all of this arguing or that this is where it is convincing, right? It's like trying to push people at the margins or trying to convince people that this is, the thing because we we can't i mean i this would be a good question for you tom can we know what the founders meant by this i mean we can to some extent right but some of it is is also a a, a, pu- a public discussion or debate about what what we consider to be impeachable yeah and i don't th- those two things are certainly not uh inconsistent with one another the part of what was so interesting about this the deeper understanding was the appeal to real things said by real framers who were really writing the real constitution. There's been very little of that in the in the conversation thus far. So uh, because this wasn't a thing that happened on the record in the ways we think about it, you know, a stenographic transcript of every word said, maybe we don't know exactly what they thought. But I was, uh, you know, I guess I'm the constitution geek here. I, I was entranced with a conversation about what the governor of Virginia said. Yes. And uh, because these were the framers yeah. and 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 here's people trying to decide what did they mean uh now again i'm struck by the irony of people looking to the framers and asking questions that justice scalia has been asked or did ask for decades uh and which were in some ways ridiculed wow those framers lived 300 years ago who cares about those people and that sort of thing yeah. now we do but uh, back to phil's point do we know what they meant we know what lots of them said, and we can make good judgments about what the range of opinions was uh, about impeachment. And, and it seems to me you can boil those down to a couple of things. The first is the framers were terribly worried about, um, and this came up repeatedly today, foreign powers exercising influence over our president. And you don't have to think very long about why that would be. We're getting rid of King George, uh, not George Washington, but the yeah. King George. Who was delightful and, in Hamilton. Exactly. We don't want him back. <laughs> and we don't want our president to ever be beholden to a foreign leader. Hugely important. The framers worried about that. But here's what else they worried about. Uh, and, and we've said this before. Parties and emotions and effectively making the, the president a person who serves at the will of the Senate. And, and somehow we've got to find middle ground between... Uh, the Senate having almost the absolute ability to checkmate a president by threatening to impeach and doing nothing. It struck me today that, you know, when you think about the founders, they weren't, they didn't have one ideology. I mean, the the founders were very diverse Mm -hmm. and that's important as well. But today, to me, as I was listening to this, there were thoughtful people reflecting on how you can understand the constitution and the founders thoughts. And there is no simple answer to Phil's question. I think there's, you could interpret it in different ways, but I'm much more comfortable having the conversation that occurred today than having the conversation that plays out. You know, when, when the, the politicians were talking today, I almost wanted to mute the television and then just listen to the con law professors and then think about, okay, let's talk about that. Not what, what everybody else was saying. Here's here's the counter to that. Yeah. I think they were fantastic arguments, and that should sway an element of the population one way or the other. The I think that there's a greater percentage of the population that, to your point, 
is going to be looking at this or looking at CNN after this with the, the, the TV muted where they're talking about Turley or something, but the, uh, the bottom third is saying, if this is an impeachable, nothing is impeachable. Right. No, at that's point. right. Yeah. And I, th- as, as, mu- as much as I think that those conversations need to be pushed towards the forefront, the way the majority of people who don't have time to watch these things, and we talked about it ad nauseum, are going to digest this information is in sound bites provided to them from major news outlets. I think, I, I think that on. it's, yeah. it's, there's, there's no way around it. If we can talk all day about the, the, the uh, independence and, and people in the middle that should be swayed one way or the other. I think that there's, they're such a small portion of the population compared to the majority of the population who are going to be paying attention to those outlets I don't think it's going to matter that much. My fear yeah. today is that the sound bites are for Fox News and MSNBC are the ones that reinforce the argument and not the deeper right. conversation. And I, I think you're I right. Li- Nick. I, I, yeah, no. I love as listening I'm, to those as arguments. As I'm listening to them talking, <laughs> they're still speaking. The New York Times came out with uh, one of the uh, you know headline updates. This is at 10:32 Central Time. So. Uh, we're only about an hour into this. Con- Three legal ex- uh, experts testified that President Trump, uh, President Trump's actions clearly met the historical definition of impeachable offenses. Period. A fourth dissented. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, I picked that one because it was the first one to cross the computer. Yeah. I'll wager if you had the Fox News sure. one, it was a compelling case was made by a Republican who uh, countered three very weak arguments or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. I'm so with you, Nick. The, the filter that we're getting this through. Um, I, I don't know if there is objective news anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sat on a panel the other day and listened to people extol the virtues of current journalism. And I thought, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. Mm-hmm. Here, here's why. I, I don't know if this is objective. And this really, this bugged the shit out of me. So uh, over, over the break, um, I think it was the New York times. There was a reporter who had to report on what Trump did over Thanksgiving and put out that all he did was golf and do something else. When in reality, he went to Afghanistan over the break. Um, she ended up getting fired and the editor ended up getting demoted. But her response to that was, well, I only had a week to write the story, which means that you had to write the story and then publish it before you knew anything was happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I like, but the fact that she was fired and the editor demoted is, is also, but I think I, I, I reassuring. Think that they, I, I'm not even sure it's reassuring. I think yeah. they understand that there's so much vitriol that comes with that and that they can't get away with that bullshit anymore. Yeah. That it's, it's frank. Like it's the, the, the ability for major news outlets, really any, any major news outlet, whether the right or the left, um, for them to be objective is I think it's, it's, I, I don't think it's physically possible anymore to be honest. So I, I, I'll try to inject a, a tiny bit of hope um, in that. I, I don't, I don't disagree <laughs> with so dour I today. Well, <laughs> I don't disagree with, with Nick or Tom that I think the media landscape is, is really problematic, right? Like I, this is and, and social media, which allows us to go to the sources that, 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 you know, confirm our own worldview. All of that is is really bad for uh, democracy and for our system. Uh, at the same time, the the uh, the 
the readily available, uh, the fact that you could watch this that because of the internet and all this other stuff that it is available. The, the other part is that I see when I'm last, whenever the, the previous, uh, hearings were happening. So the week before Thanksgiving, um, as I walked around my, uh, building on campus, people were watching right in their office uh, and not just political science professors, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the staff members, people were watching today. Uh, I, the reason I didn't get to see much, I was at, I was at the doctor's office all day. I was waiting for my wife, but the thing, the TV in the waiting room was on the hearings and the, the waiting room was full and people were sitting around watching and talking about what was what was going on. Um, and so, I, you know, and, and I'm sure they all have their viewpoints as well. But I, I, I'm not I'm not overly optimistic that this is going to lead to some, you know, well-founded national conversation, but I'm not quite as cynical. There's this little, maybe it's a naive part of me that thinks that people are actually paying attention and and that they might actually really be thinking about, um, or enough people might really be thinking about the issues that it might matter. That's a lot of mites, but it's still something. I saw, I saw an interesting thing on the Nixon impeachment where they talked about the parallels to today. And they said, yes, today is more partisan, but the Nixon impeachment was deeply partisan as well. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until years later that we started to come understand really what happened and the significance of that. And the argument there was that there is hope that the public will shift, you know, that there will be some more clarity to it. And one of the things that was interesting, they talked about like Republicans who were staunch Nixon defenders all the way to the end. And then they read their obituaries. And interestingly, their obituaries, most of them led with Nixon defender, Nixon defender. And, and they were saying like, you know, some of these individuals who are Trump defenders should think about this. Do you want to go down with the Trump ship? And maybe you do, maybe you don't. You know, what do the founders really well, want? Well, but that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem with the media. Uh, I mean, so I've taken the position repeatedly on this podcast that it is not obstruction of justice to go to the courts. Does that make me a Trump defender? No. Be- well, but I think in a lot of the press, it does. That is, when you make these arguments, the best that can be said of you is you're a Trump defender. The worst is you're Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh or somebody like that. And uh, my worry, and I'm, I'm with Nick on this, though I'm not uh, cynical, wouldn't be the word I'd, uh, I'd use. Um, you can say right. I, I right think is fine. <laughs> when there's a filter, yeah. and, and there has been, uh, it is reinforcing existing opinions yeah. rather than producing real knowledge. And, and I think mm-hmm. I, what, what, I'm with you, Phil. What, what's so exciting to me is people were watching the real thing today <laughs> rather than listening to what. Uh, Chris Matthews or Sean Hannity had to say about it. That is hopeful. The one thing I would say about obstruction, I think if the Democrats are smart, they don't obstruct on the Ukraine issue because I think you're right. That's a that's a losing issue. Mm-hmm. The question of like, if you go back to the Mueller report, if you want to do obstruction, that it seems like there's much more meat there right. than there would be on Ukraine. Yes, I, I, yes. I, I, I agree. If you're Democrats, let the Ukraine process play out. Go to the courts. Have the Supreme Court say, yes, you get all of these documents. That seems like a right. not only a political win, but a potential impeachment win as well. I got to ask one question. Yeah. I know we're way uh, – here's my cue for we're over time is when Bill starts looking at his smartwatch. <laughs> and when I know that he's not looking at texts from his family, right. but when he's looking at the time. But I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the question of to what degree is a political opponent insulated from criticism or questions hmm. because they are that. So let's assume that Bill uh, – I'm sorry, that uh, uh, Joe Biden was passing state secrets to the Ukrainians. And the president says to the president of Ukraine, uh, I, I think that uh, Joe Biden was passing state secrets. Is that an impeachable offense? 
I mean, I mean this yeah. seriously because mm-hmm. is is investigating. We have this thing called the, the Foreign Corrupt Practices yeah, Act, yeah, yeah. and it lets us prosecute people right. who bribe foreign officials to produce favorable results for their businesses. We encourage companies who will benefit from a prosecution to report other people. Mm-hmm. So imagine Apple reporting some Google executive who's bribing somebody. Uh, in the glorious European Union, uh, you know, to get around an antitrust law or something like that. We want people who benefit from yes. the downfall of somebody else to report. And, and I, I become more curious about the question of, is there anything Joe Biden could have done that is so awful that the president couldn't ask another country to participate in deciding whether he's the one subverting democracy this is my favorite or whether question. Trump is? I think we all want to jump in. Go. Now, I'm not a Trump defender. I want to say that yeah. quickly. So before you put that in my epitaph, yeah. no, 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 on no. my tombstone, and <laughs> in my biography when no. you introduce me yeah. in places. Right, right. No, I brought this I, question this up a couple question. episodes ago. I, I don't, I'm not sure there's a good response to it, but I'd love to hear you too. I, I think there's a very good response to it. I think the response is that, well, there's there's important, important things to look at, one of which is uh, what's the purpose of the investigation? In this case, Joe Biden is not the one that's actually under investigation. It's Joe Biden's son. And, and the question is, does it benefit Donald Trump or does it benefit? Is this a, something that is aimed to benefit the United States of America? And in this, cla- well, in this case, can't both be true? Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> if Joe Biden's not the one who's the issue of uh, this inquiry and it's just Hunter Biden, then I guess the argument would be, well, Trump wasn't benefiting by getting rid of one of his political opponents. He was getting rid of the son of one of his political. No, am I misunderstanding you? No, I mean the 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 attack is on Joe Biden because he is running for president. If you can if you can sully his son and make it look corrupt, then that that benefits Donald Trump in the in the election. The other difference is that this is not a, an investigation that is emerging from the the Attorney General and the Department of Justice. This is a depart. Yeah. This is a Donald Trump thing that he is running on the side, actually contrary to the State Department and to other things that the government is is actually pursuing. I mean, there's a I, there's a difference, right? I mean, you, there's there's a I, I understand well, the idea that difference. it's hard to I, find the line sometimes, but yeah, that's it, what I'm after. Yeah, yeah. Is, is yeah. I want I want to find a line because if we're scrupulous about this, then I'd return to a question that we've we've chatted among the four of us about, and maybe come back to on the podcast sometime. Does a senator who benefits from voting Trump out mm-hmm. of office have a duty? to, uh, you know, uh, get out and not vote, to recuse. Mm-hmm. If we're going to be scrupulous yeah, about not right. benefiting from uh, these kinds of things, then I guess I'm going to wonder, where do we draw the line? Let me think about it. I don't want to rebring that topic when we've got way over time. So but. so in my uh, teaching class right now, we're looking at the Iraq war decision. And one of the conversations that came up today was whether we should have held George W. Bush and administrative officials accountable for the Iraq war. And there were a number of students, conservative students, who were making the argument, absolutely, we should have. And they were angry at Obama for not doing so. And it led to this really interesting conversation about the difficulty of of investigating political opponents. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, no, Obama should have done this. And my my point is, it's really difficult for Obama to have done that, even if it was legitimate, because it would have been perceived as partisan. That's the hard thing. So if you are... You know, if somebody's running against you, I don't know how you do that in a way, I guess maybe you do it in a way where you leave it entirely to the Department of Justice. And you say, as a president, I am hands off. Mm. And Trump has compromised himself by constantly being involved. The problem is the Department of Justice is part of his branch of government. 
So true. And and so the yeah. argument would be, well, yeah, well, it's one thing to say from the Rose Garden uh, podium, my hands are off. I have nothing to do with this. This is all about the Department of Justice. But the answer from, a, I hope, a hard pressing press is going to be, well, wait a minute, they work for you. In fact, that's been some of the argument relative to Bill Barr and things yes. that Donald Trump says I've had nothing to do with. And Bill Barr says he hasn't, but everybody, well, he works for you. Right. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, that's a real argument for saying we should think about the attorney general similar to the FBI, where yeah. we say this is an independent office yes. right. where they have that's autonomy and, and maybe can't be removed mm-hmm. and at the whim of the president. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a really important point. I, I mean, I, I think that this goes back to, and I, I agree with Phil and, and, and Tom on this. I, I think that the argument is not necessarily about this particular situation, but the, the difficulty of figuring out how do you investigate a political opponent if there is some sort of potential impropriety in some way, shape or form. But um, I, I think that this, this kind of goes back to a dereliction of duty in, in Congress to figure out what the procedures of this would be and how do we change a system to make this more yes. transparent and, and, and repeatable uh, and more procedural to where we don't have these questions going forward sure. and they continue to not want to deal we, with We them. could elect people who are not cri- criminals too, right? I mean, that would, you know, that would help. I mean, they wouldn't be in government if they weren't <laughs> criminals, but whatever. Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. We should talk beer. This was, ah, this was fun. I enjoyed <laughs> this one. Uh, Phil, start us off. What are you drinking? So I'm drinking uh, a Viridian IPA. This is from Banded Brewing, which is out of Maine, somewhere in Maine, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Biddeford, Maine. Um, uh, it's this is a really nice IPA. I mean, it's 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 very grapefruity. It's got that sort of you know piney kind of uh, both aroma and taste to it. It's it's um. This is this is a good. I would call this a good but not great IPA. It's very drinkable. I really enjoy it. Um, it's not one of the ones that I've had where I'm like, "Holy cow, this is really good." But you know, it's like everything I expect in an IPA. Would you have another? Yeah, I'd have another. That's that's a, that's a different level. That's, a that's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have another? Nick, so what did we start with today? Uh, so we uh, started with a, a long haul from uh, Forge Brewhouse, which is out of DeKalb, Illinois, their barrel age series. Um, it's kind of a uh, not I wouldn't say it's heavy. It was kind of a, a medium. But stout. was it 10.5? It was. Yeah, it's 10.5 yeah, so it percent. Like, so it's yeah. awesome. Right yeah. Out taste of the, the alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it had, um, I, I, uh, what's a good way to describe it? Like, I imagine it being um, kind of more bitter, but it had kind of a nice chocolatey, yeah. vanilla yeah, taste to it. Um, and it wasn't overpowering. Uh, the texture was fairly light. Uh, and the head was pretty light, too, as I recall. Right. Mm-hmm. Look at Nick getting so Nick and Phil are like just leading the charge in beer <laughs> reviews now. <laughs> Phil used this time. word. Grapefruity. <laughs> I mean, right out of the beer judge of America uh, lexicon. I, I, I feel I can die knowing that also, also on my tombstone, beyond whatever Bill puts on it will be, taught Phil and Nick about beer. <laughs> and frankly, that's far more important to me than right. whether or not... Anyway, oh. that was it was a really good beer. I, I, I thought you I could was, taste the alcohol, though. Yes. You, yeah. You, yeah, it was, it was, a, little, it was a little pungent, but... I, I, I still feel like it was less so than I, I thought it would be, given the, the percentage. Um, I picked this up randomly. I was pleasantly surprised by it. So I, yeah. I enjoyed so, it. So, Tom, our okay. second beer. Uh, Kentucky Bourbon Stout. We've had this one, I feel like, before, maybe not on the podcast, though. Um, 
This is uh, an oak bourbon barrel uh, beer. Um, widely available now, even though it didn't used to be. So my friend in Kentucky, to, Todd, yeah, used yeah. to bring these up for us. Yeah. 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 Wait, Todd, who was my best friend for a while, <laughs> has not been heard from. <laughs> Todd, where are you? Um, this is a really nice beer. And it's interesting to drink it next to the one uh, Nick brought. It's not a stout. Uh, that's it's, it's more of an amber. And you, you can see it when you look at it. Um, but it's a very tasty beer. I, I, I thought it was really good. I do too. I like this one a lot. It, it paired really well with the first beer. Yeah. All right. We've had our first sip of the third beer, which is a, from revolution brewing. It's Fismas, their holiday, holiday ale. Uh, Nick, I saw you scowl. I, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Yeah, like, I'm not like a lot of revolution stuff. I feel like his, I feel like the quality has gone down over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, their Fistmas was never really a big thing. I don't really like holiday beers in general. It just feels like I'm drinking a, a handful of cloves, yeah. and I'm not I'm, – I'm just not a fan. Yeah. Nick managed to be right and wrong all within five sentences. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Rev me, right, Tom? <laughs> Rev Brew, quality, not going down. Fistmas, I'm totally with him. I, I, I don't know that I've ever had a Christmas beer I like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, spice and beer are antonyms. Well, when I got this one, they said there's much less ginger and I taste this and I feel a lot of, my mouth is full of ginger. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm not, I agree with you guys. This is fantastic. Um, On that note, um, if you guys want to check out our, uh, the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there and you will find all of our reviews. Speed around. Yes. Let's do it. So let's start with the case of uh, Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher. Gallagher was convicted of a single charge of bringing discredit to the armed services after posing next to a dead ISIS fighter's body and was demoted for that offense. The Navy SEAL has been accused of stabbing a wounded uh, teenage captive as well as attempted murder of Iraqi civilians and obstruction of justice was acquitted on those charges. While the case itself is fascinating, President Trump's intervention in the case is what makes it a national story. Trump reversed Gallagher's demotion and directly ordered the Navy to allow Gallagher to retire with his Trident pin. Then after then after a behind-the-scenes dispute with the Navy, a Secretary of the Navy, Trump fired the Navy Secretary, Richard Spencer. Then, when the Navy awarded the prosecutors who tried the case an award, Trump ordered the Navy to immediately withdraw and rescind the awards. While most agree that the president probably has the power to do all of the above, his behavior is once again, Phil, norm busting. <laughs> Phil, for me, this one falls in the deeply problematic bucket. Uh, what's what's your reaction to this? I, I find all of this really, really interesting. Yeah, this is, for me, at least, this is deeply problematic. This is... Uh... It's not just this one case, right? There are three different cases that that Trump has intervened in to undo uh, criminal prosecutions. One, you know, one guy is the is the guy who, you know, the the people around him altered the sights on his rifle because he was so it was known that he would target, uh, you know, civilians. And the other, I guess, the the thing I come back to is that this is this is not some, you know. The, the U.S. is not exactly known for liberally distributing justice against our own armed forces. This is not the International Criminal Court doing this. This is not some international group that with their sights set on like punishing Americans. This is the American military justice system that has ruled that these three people have actually, you know, violated the code, the military code of conduct, violated rules and laws of war. Um, and it's Trump intervening to undo that, uh, to, which is in some way, you know, putting a stamp of approval on the idea that that 
there are no rules of law when it comes to warfare. And, and you know, Bill, I know you you have taught classes on ethics and war as well. I I've, I teach classes on ethics and war and and, and morality and war. And you know, the, oftentimes the the strong, many times the strongest supporters of these sorts of rules are military personnel who Absolutely. know that that if the rules, right. you know, if the rules dissolve, they are the on the losing end of that as well. So the the fact that you know I, I, any idea of of basically disputing the idea that American soldiers aren't bound by rules um, is is deeply con- disconcerting for me. The, the idea that the president is the one pushing it and that the reports are that President Trump wants one of these three guys to go out on the campaign trail with him, which is not just saying that I don't think that they should be held responsible, but I'm going to hold them up as like a, you know, a pillar yeah, of, a whole of, other of level. society. Yeah, it, it's, it's really concerning. For me, Nick. Yeah, uh, Nick. No, this is reprehensible. There's no reason to do this. I, I, I can't imagine that there are any of us or, or most people that would think that this is the right decision to make. The evidence is pretty clear at this point. The, the fact that you have as much internal support from the U.S. military suggests the people who would know best suggest that this is blatantly obvious. Um, I, I just I, I, I cannot fathom what political motivation there is to do this besides some high-minded, very basic attempt to say, I support the U S military and you know, this is a guy in the military and, and, and that's it. But, uh, a Navy seal, right. A Navy seal. But I just, it's just, you, you dig, you know, a half an inch in, and this is just an, an awful case. And the fact that he was so vehemently, uh, invested in this is just I I, I, I just don't under, yeah right from yeah. from early I I just I don't understand it Tom you're Tom you're not in your head as well I, uh, everything Nick said ditto I ju- I, I completely agree one thing I would uh, advance is there's two issues here the first is what did Trump do and I'm with Nick I, it's a perfect word reprehensible but then the firing of the Navy secretary I I I'd bifurcate these two issues because one of the arguments. Um, he made and then violated was follow the chain of command. Mm -hmm. And, and what the defense secretary says is we fired this guy because he didn't do that and did an end run into the white house. Um, I know we've said before, and Phil's corrected me and quite rightly that uh, two things can be uh, true at (laughs) once, even if they appear not to be or false at once, even if, but it can be true that what, what Donald Trump did was reprehensible and that the Navy secretary acted in a way that was also inappropriate. I don't know if reprehensible describes that, but, but inappropriate. And he, he wrote an op-ed was it the, the poster, the mm-hmm. times where he acknowledged that. And he said, I yeah. own this mistake. This yeah. was, I shouldn't have done this. Right. And he said, it, 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 still that being said, this is, this is troubling that this is yes. occurring. Yeah. Um, Phil had a, Phil had a synonym for problematic. And I mean, was it disconcerting or, uh, that sounds right. We may have to trouble. We, yeah. yeah. we may have to do a playback here because I feel like all of a sudden we keep moving from deeply problematic right. to deeply other things. Right. And we had a bucket charge. of deeply yeah. problematic. Oh, I'm telling you, for me, this is a whole bucket. <laughs> and, and, and you're right, Phil, that, you know, we teach these just war courses where we talk about the ethics of war and peace. And, and I would say that the United States in many ways is the gold standard for, for a military, right. In terms of holding itself accountable. And, as an institution. So we talk about the Supreme court as an institution. I think the military as an institution does a pretty decent job of saying we, it's in our interest to hold ourselves accountable and don't have a political actor intervening and undermining that unless they're the CIA. 
<laughs> no. So and and being the commander in chief does not change the argument you just made. Exactly. That that's that's a really good point. We we, we have a system of military justice that should not, this would be like John Roberts calling a trial court and saying not that he could. You can't do that. Yeah. And and the the fact that he can't do that that should argue that neither should Trump be able to call a military justice. Well, we didn't call anybody there, but and change an outcome. Right. It's right. horrifying. It's no, horrifying. It, it, it it's might, the CIA. I mean, it might be surprising to be, I mean, the, during the Bush administration with all the, the, you know, enhanced interrogation stuff, the people within the military were some of the str- most outspoken yes, right. people about how this is going to screw us in the long run. This is not who we are. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, there's a, this is not a, a new anti-Trump thing that is, that has developed. Yeah. I really hope he doesn't bring him out on the campaign trail. I think that would oh, be bad God. for the political system. I think that it would, would be bad be, for the military. Yeah. I, it just it's it's just not a good idea. It, but isn't that? I mean, isn't that this feels very Trumpian, right? I mean, he's yes. uh, the, the rhetoric from the beginning has uh, has been. I mean, he's talked about how he would conduct wars, how he would you know nuke people off the face of the earth or whatever. But even more than that, his rhetoric about liking winners and you know I he likes people who kick ass and the rules you know being constrained by rules is stupid. And I mean, it's like kind of lines up with his worldview in lots of ways. But that's such a messed up understanding of the military, though. Well, for right? sure. I mean, it's like, I mean, this is a guy who had bone spurs and didn't serve, right? I just, I just don't, I don't, I, I think, yeah, I, I'd rather leave this to the military to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's jump to the Supreme Court. For the first time in 10 years, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a major gun rights case, but all the anticipation seemed to fade as the debate in the high court on Monday focused almost entirely on whether the case should be dismissed as moot. To remind our listeners, at at issue was the New York law that allowed New York City residents to have a permit for a gun at home, but barred them from transporting the gun elsewhere except to seven New York City shooting ranges. It is argued that this is a violation of their Second Amendment rights to bear arms because they could not transport their guns to shooting ranges and competitions outside the city or to second homes. Tom, what should we think of these developments? Will the case have some sizzle or fizzle out? (laughs) Sizzle or fizzle. (laughs) That's right. Thanks, Nick. How do I not? I'm going to go with fizzle. I'm not. Um, And I guess what I mean by that is I I think John Roberts, given how cautious and circumspect he is, is likely to side with the four uh, left-leaning judges and say this case is moot. That said, the message sent by the court when they took the case is really important. Um, We have two decisions 10 years ago, Heller and McDonald, that said there is an individual right under the Second Amendment to possess and use a handgun or a long rifle, a long barrel rifle. Both were about short barrel pistols because those are the things most controversial. Um, I I think that what you have seen is a galvanizing of the four on the right side of the court uh, to come back to these Second Amendment issues with two new votes, um, and in particular the replacement of Kennedy with a much more uh, originalist and textualist vote to think about the Second Amendment and the the, the almost relentless state and local level efforts to subvert a Supreme Court decision. I know we talked about this several months ago, and we said abortion is to the left what gun rights are to the right, and efforts to curtail those rights having been given by the court uh, are, are absolutely comparable. New York here engaged in bad faith at two different levels. 
One of them was passing a statute they knew was unconstitutional. And second, a, a bad faith mooting. That is what they did was to go through the trial court and then they went through the appellate court at both levels of which they won. And then when the I'm going to write that term down, bad faith mooting. Bad faith mooting. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I wanted to come back to bipartisan buffoonery and I missed that one because I had constitutional <laughs> bazooka at the live. I, I just want to leave a phrase every time or an analogy. Uh, this time it's bad faith buffoonery, and that's what's going on in Congress right now. The word cloud is going to be uh, the fifth shirt. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But here, it is bad faith to pass a law one knows is constitu- uh, unconstitutional, push it through a trial in an appellate court, and then when both of those courts rule in your favor and the Supreme Court says, not so fast, no, no, we'll repeal that law. And we're going to do it to make sure the Supreme Court doesn't tell us what we did in the first place was wrong. And so you heard from Thomas and Gorsuch in particular, well, Thomas Gorsuch and Alito in particular, we should rule on the merits to stop this sort of pernicious nonsense from happening. And I don't mean nonsense in the sense that I'm trying to advocate for or against a big Second Amendment right. I mean nonsense in the sense that people have a duty to honor what the Supreme Court says. And everybody in New York knew this law wouldn't pass Supreme Court muster. What they hoped would happen is the Second uh, Second Circuit would rule in their favor, the Supreme Court would deny cert, and then they could deny gun owners the right to, and I want to just give a phrase here, the trip they had to take was continuous and uninterrupted. Mm -hmm. So that part of this argument was about, can you stop and get a cup of coffee or visit your grandmother or whatever? And, And the press lampooned this, primarily because most of the press doesn't understand what the question was. If the statute says you can't get out of your car once you put your gun in it, that's a really significant thing. Can you, can you pump gas? Well, no, not if you've got a gun in the back seat. So I, I think there's a lot of sizzle. I hope the four on the one side can persuade uh, uh, John Roberts that you can't let people bad faith moot cases so that they don't get rulings on the merits. What's, what's your prediction about how they'll go on that? You said you hope they can I, convince him. I think they won't. And I think what he's going to say, uh, we, we've said this for years on this. I don't know how many years I've been doing it, but uh, <laughs> Roberts really worries about the appearance of the court. And more importantly, he worries about a longstanding legal principle. And that is that courts, and in particular, the Supreme Court, don't render advisory opinions. So presidents can't call the court and say, what do you think you do right. uh, under these circumstances? And, and the argument that was made by uh, the lawyers representing New York is this now amounts to an advisory opinion. And that's why all this business about travel came up, because the argument is there's still a live controversy here. Because can the court review, can the court rule on a case if there is no law? So if New York rescinds it, is there still something to rule on? That's the argument. So the question is, could there, for example, be money damages that people who were prevented from traveling with their guns are entitled to? Oh, that's interesting. And, and, and this came that's up. That's a different wrinkle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the court has to rule on one of these cases because it's bad for uh, bad faith mooting. This is not just a gun thing. Well, that's what Let I was going to ask you. Yeah. One. There's, there's, there's quite a few cases involving civil forfeiture, government taking property from people and saying, we're going to keep this irrespective of the fact that you have not been convicted of a crime, trial court agrees, appellate court agrees. And then when the Supreme Court says, we're going to make a decision about civil forfeiture, we're going to give that property back. So you don't, 
So we moot the case. I don't this like is it. Wrong. This yeah. is for a libertarian. This is. Uh, I'm just telling you. This gives me ulcers. This <laughs> this is the worst possible use of the courts and government. We're going to do everything we can to violate your rights, and then when it looks like we're going to lose, we'll take the question off the table. Mm. It's like pulling your bet back in a poker game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's horrifying. I feel like I learn every topic. Nick. <laughs> All right, we got to jump to NATO. So this week, world leaders have traveled to London to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the NATO alliance. The ritual means that Trump has the opportunity to meet with a variety of European leaders. And of particular note was Trump's meeting with the French president, Emmanuel Macron. Unlike previous meetings, Macron was in no mood to play nice. Sitting alongside Trump, Macron said he stood by his comments about NATO. He recently described the longtime coalition as suffering from brain death in part due to a lack of U.S. leadership under Trump, and described the alliance as a burden we share. On Tuesday, Trump described uh, Macron's comments as nasty and insulting, but Macron didn't back down and managed to put Trump on the defensive. He even swatted away the president's joke about whether Macron would like some nice ISIS fighters. He also had a nice meeting. (laughs) He also had a meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And at that meeting, while that meeting went fine, afterwards, there was a reception at uh, Buckingham Palace where they appeared to mock Trump at the meeting. Uh, We have audio of both. Nick, do you want to play some audio for us? Sure. Yes. Uh, Would you like some nice ISIS fighters? Look, you can take take everyone you want. (laughs) Let's be serious. Uh. Well, he's too fast. You think that Germany is too naive? And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I called him out on the fact that he's not paying 2%. And I guess he's not very happy about it. I mean, you were there. A couple of you were there. And uh, he's not paying 2%. And he should be paying 2%. It's Canada. They have money. <laughs> Look, it's Canada. They have is money. It, it's Canada. They is, have is, money. It's Canada. They is, have money. Is one Trudeau face black and one Trudeau face white? I just, I, I don't think. Trump is clever enough to know what he just <laughs> no. did there, but this was really good yes, yes. if he was. So I think Don Jr. <laughs> tweeted that out along oh, those really? lines. Yes, yeah. So Phil. <laughs> oh, so now on my, now you on my tombstone, right. Trump defender said what Trump Jr. That's said. Right. Oh, my God. So, Phil, this felt like a role reversal. European leaders were the ones putting Trump on the defensive and arguing for NATO. It appears as if the days of playing nice with Trump are over. What was your your read of all of this? Um, I, I think I read it a little bit differently than, than that. I I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily NATO putting Trump on the defensive. I think it's, you know, after three years, NATO has, has learned that that's a, that's a, that's a dead end road. I mean, they, I felt like early on there was this attempt to try to convince Trump that NATO was important. And, and they've, I think they've realized that's not going to happen. I mean, Trump has spent three years, you know, lashing out at NATO, lashing out at European allies, imposing trade sanctions, all sorts of other stuff. So I, I feel like this is this is an example of the other NATO leaders realizing uh, one of two things. They either need to figure out how to do this without the leadership of the United States, or they need to hold out for, you know, to they're going to do what they need to do and, and hope that in a year that there will be a different president they can deal with. Um, so, I, I mean, this just seems like people like two different sides who... I, you know, like Trump is why, you know, you could make an argument. Why is Trump going right? Trump's not, he's not, he's not going to persuade other people. He's not interested in persuading other people. He doesn't believe in the institution. The other NATO allies um, can't expect anything from Trump anymore. I just, you know, it, in some ways it makes sense. And, and Trump, you know, I, I think the, the, he, he is, 
so today he he announced that he's leaving early and coming back because of the video that that went around of who it was it was Macron and Trudeau and Boris Johnson Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson yes. and somebody and, else and that the, were uh, <laughs> Princess Anne was there yeah the sewing yeah. circle <laughs> the monarchy yeah. was there yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so yeah I mean I th- I think it's I don't know this feels this feels like the the sort of natural outcome like we're putting on this show of a of a unified NATO when nobody actually believes that that is the situation currently so. Yeah, let's 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 be done with the pretense. Mm. Nicholas? Yes, let's be done with the pretense, <laughs> shall we? You want to talk about lob <laughs> pitch to Nick. Yeah. You want to talk about the the efficacy of NATO and how the the imperial presidency in the US and 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 their, you know, uh postmodern colonialism, but you still cling to the the concept of the US being the the integral part, the center of this organization, this alliance. But you don't want to take the burden on yourselves to do that. Fuck them. I don't care. And I, I, I know Trump doesn't either at this point. Like realistically, I, I understand the the need for NATO and, and and the importance of NATO. But if you want to play these stupid schoolyard games about what is important and who's supposed to be in charge, then one of you needs to come forward and do something about it. And you know the best way to do that? Start paying for shit. Start paying more for shit. I, it, 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 I, I, I keep saying this, and every topic that we have, I'm baffled that people so, that you're think so this way. Up, I, I, I just, I, I, something needs to fundamentally change. You want to talk about that the U.S. is either too much of an influence, but now they're not enough of an influence. So then do something about it. We know you're not going to go to Russia, so what is the alternative? Someone needs to step up and take that place. If you're not going to do that, then there needs to be and and an equitable understanding of who contributes to the alliance to make it effective. And right now it's not effective. You can't keep your own people from striking for more than two weeks. So I don't want to hear anything from you, you pompous asshole. This should have been the live show. I want to put a couple numbers on what Nick is saying, because I agree with a lot of what he just said. Um, France... Let's go back to the the quote Bill pulls. Uh, uh, describes the alliance as quote a burden we share. False. Yes, mm-hmm. we bear the burden, and they bear very little of it. We spend almost three point two percent of GDP on defense, and they spend considerably less than two percent on defense. And I guess I'm having a hard time resenting a president saying to people who share a security agreement, "Pony up." It's 2% didn't come from us. Mm-hmm. 2% is a shared understanding of what countries ought to spend supporting the NATO Defense Alliance. We do it, they don't. And let's go on and say, if you just talk in terms of raw dollars, 3 to, uh, 3.2% of our uh, GDP is vastly more than most of theirs combined. Also correct. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't like insulting and I don't like I don't like the sort of juvenile mm-hmm. playground nonsense. I do. Um, <laughs> but what I do like is somebody who says, and, and here I am going to defend with the president, not leaving early and not some of his rhetoric, but I, I'm okay with the president saying to the Europeans, here's the thing. NATO exists to protect you. We have an ocean to protect us. Mm-hmm. And uh, while there's more to NATO than simply that, and I don't want to be too reductionist here, um, we're putting a lot of money on the table and we think you should do the same thing. 
let me. I'll, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. I'll offer a, couple, a few thoughts. One is NATO agreed that by 2024, all states would be at two percent. So there, this is a pledge over time. So that's important to note. The other thing is the United States is the global hegemon, right? We are the biggest state of the system. That matters, right? It's not just you know our percentage isn't just for NATO. We do lots of things around the world. So that that figure is Which also costs us more than the 3.2 percent. Mm-hmm. We're and benefits us gr- dramatically too. But it right? also benefits them greatly. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm not, I'm not more disagreeing with them than us at this. Point. Yes, but they. I mean, the the reality is when you are the big kid on the block, there's extra burdens and there's extra mm-hmm. benefits to mm-hmm. that, right? And yeah. so I think yeah. there's even if Europe was like we're out, it would still be in the United States' interest to pursue that. Of and course. So so the, just to add a bit of a nuance, the other thing I would add is that the United States is. Well, Phil, you wanted to say something. I'm sorry. No, I mean, it was basically what you were – I mean, just to kind of go yeah. off of what you were just saying is that I, I, I understand the arguments that, that Nick and Tom are making about how uh, they benefit more than us. But that's, that's through a, a sort of a narrow definition of self-interest. If you think that the only thing that we get out of NATO is that if someone attacks us, Estonia is coming to our aid, then you're right. It's not in our self-interest. But instead – Nick and I don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> But that's basically what you've argued. It's not. Okay, so I'm what's arguing, different about it? I'm arguing that partners ought to be partners. And that if we've reached an agreement that we share the burden financially of defense that is mutual and defense that is largely to the benefit of Europeans, it is not wrong for our president to say, I want to see the money on the table. I don't care if it's, I, I don't want to it's diminish a, Estonia as a defense partner yeah. in the so long-term I, I, viability I guess, of the United States right. of America. But I guess I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I, I think there's there's a danger in the U.S. getting caught up on that 2% because I think we miss out on all the benefits that we gain from NATO through sure. – in terms of U.S. leadership and the way, the, the, mm-hmm. the way in which we, through U.S. leadership, through this sort of defense that we promise to other allies, the benefits that come from that. I, I'm not particularly concerned about the 2% because I see the payoff coming in an ability of the U.S. to shape global norms, right? Global institutions to play this yeah. leadership role, to, to – sort of help direct how allies go. And I think those are worth yeah, more yeah, yeah. than a 2% you know, French contribution to, to NATO. Yeah. I, I would say that I, I think there's there's a difference between I, I, the the core elements of NATO, uh, Russia, Germany, mm-hmm. those things, and, and ancillary countries like Estonia and whatnot. Uh, I think that there, we understand Nick, that Nick there's- Nick just added Russia to NATO. I just <laughs> Did I say yeah. Russia? <laughs> I thought yeah. I said Germany. Yeah. NATO no. doesn't like Russia. Germany, no, yes. I'm sorry. Russia, no. <laughs> Russia, no. I'm, I'm sorry. NATO if I said that, an it, was, it, was a, it was a slip of the tongue and not absolutely, <laughs> not completely um, meant to happen. Um, I, I would say that, I like for me, there's an understanding that we know that those core elements have the ability to contribute that amount to it. I, I think that in terms of the globalized economic system and, and everything else that the U.S. contributes to, um, that we created since World War II, yeah, absolutely, we should be putting more out to to keep that system going and to expand it as much as possible. I think that in in terms of again the the central figures that were there from the beginning that have the industrialized capability to uh, provide that amount of input to these alliances, especially to NATO, that that should be 
that that should be obvious that, that that's something that she sh- they should absolutely contribute without any sort of preconditions. The, well, the one thing I would add to all of this is that we have two conversations. <laughs> we have a conversation about the political, which is sort of silly, and, but militarily, NATO is in a much better position than it was five years ago. So there are much more troops and infrastructure pushing up against uh, against Russia. So like militarily, NATO is in a fantastic position. Politically, it's a disaster. And it's, but the it's, political thing has been the issue. Like, really, right, like, outside I know. of the military yes. assets that NATO has, everything else is a fucking dumpster yeah, fire. And we haven't said anything Stop. about Turkey. Right. Oh, right. my God. Oh, yeah. Speaking of dumpster oh, fires. That's a long, that's a real long-term problem. Oh. And that might be a speed round for a different time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm back to real partners are real partners. Mm-hmm. And and I, I don't want to be portrayed as hung up on the 2%. And I know, Phil, you're trying to do that on purpose. Paying your share and paying a share that reflects at least some measure of the benefit you achieve, it seems to me is important. And, you know, the libertarian position on a lot of these things, and let's throw in foreign aid here is, I, I have a hard time with the idea that we are nation building on our dime, that we're NATOing on our dime. I would much prefer a different sort of economy and a different sort of governmental relationship with other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I, I, I mean, I don't say that to, um, I, this is a genuine difference from Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk about Justin Amash in yeah. a minute here. Uh, foreign aid is to libertarians a really troubling concept. And, and it is not dissimilar to overspending on NATO right. to buy friendship from the very people who should be our friends. Well, and maybe a good way to end is that I'm so tired of Trump thinking that all of these contributions are like to some NATO fund. Yeah. He keeps talking about that they owe us. And that's yeah. so like misconstrues right. how they owe, agree yeah. With you. yeah, they owe <laughs> us, you know, for and the other day, yesterday he was talking about they owe us back dues, right? Nobody owes anybody for NATO dues, right? It's it, right. All right. Let's talk about Justin Amash. <laughs> Patriot Act. This this got me all lathered up. A few weeks back, the House of Representatives passed a continuing resolution to fund the government and prevent another government shutdown. Yet what no one is talking about is that the tucked into that bill was a three-month extension of the Patriot Act. Now, for our younger listeners, the Patriot Act was the post-9-11 law that gave the federal government sweeping surveillance and search powers and circumvent traditional law enforcement rules. Key provisions under the... um, under the Patriot Act, were set to expire on December 15th, including Section 215, the legal underpinning of the call uh, detail records program exposed in, a, in the very first Edward Stone leak. Tom's favorite libertarian, Justin Amash, submitted an amendment to strip the Patriot Act language from the budget bill, but the amendment was blocked. Tom, we are now 18 years out from 9-11. And in a time of historic partisanship, uh, our politicians can nevertheless come together and find ways to sneakily reauthorize the Patriot Act. What was your reaction to this development? And again, it got no news. Nobody's talking about this. It hurts me to admit this, but for our younger few uh, listeners, I'm as old as Bill Muck and Nick combined. <laughs> so I'm not one of those younger listeners. I've lived through the entire age of the most horrifying thing on earth, the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the second thing I've never sworn on the podcast. I'm going to do so now. My reaction is these assholes in Congress can't do (laughs) anything unless they sneak up on us. And there is something really, really wrong with the idea that a profoundly controversial privacy depriving, uh, intrusive government act is nudged into 
an appropriations bill so these cowardly, I'm going to return to a word, assholes don't have to defend what they're saying, uh, what they're doing. I hate it. I oppose it. It's everything that's wrong with government. This is uh, indefensible. How about that for a reaction? Well said. <laughs> is, do we do we have a sense of, of I, I haven't seen poll. I know there was polling, you know, early on about the Patriot Act and and in the post 9-11 era, there was lots of support for it out of fear of terrorism and whatnot. Um, I. I would it would it be that controversial? This in some ways feels a little bit like what we talk about in terms of living in the Trump era and that we've gotten used to living in prison, right? We've just gotten so used to that this is the way life is that I, I, I'm a little surprised that they felt the need to sneak it through because I, I don't know that I – I'm not – yeah. I'm not all that convinced that America would be all that up in arms about it even if it was in the news, which is also concerning. It's this is a, getting worse. <laughs> well, no, but it's such a. Yeah. I, I say to students when I teach a seminar on privacy, uh, do you understand the range of ways the Patriot Act right. has exposed things about you to government that you think they don't know? Of course, they don't know these things, and and yet when I tell them all of those, uh, Phil, to your point, uh, you know, whatever I put that up on Facebook, mm-hmm. or I put it on my. I, I learned a new phrase this week. You can put a thing on the gram. <laughs> this Jesus. is this is how you say you can put something on uh, the Instagram, right? <laughs> I, I just said I was really old, and I want everybody to know uh, that oh I, I can talk the lingo. Yes, that's right. <laughs> we're kicking you around the done this live too. Oh. Nick's hand is fully, or his face is fully in we're, his hand. We're, Listen, I'm going to put oh. the Patriot Act on the gram, my friend. Oh, my, I made my but eye now, twitch. But now back to a serious <laughs> point here. Um, when people know what it actually does. Uh, your library records, completely uh, uh, available to the government. Phone for example. records. Your phone records. And then when you look at what Snowden reveals about places where government has pushed beyond the boundaries of the Patriot Act, then students say, oh, wait a minute. This is not about protecting me. This is about knowing things about me that government has no right to know. And, and that's why I think Congress is sneaky, because they're terrified people will figure out what it is they're doing here. So, I have Nick, two follow-up questions for Tom, one of which is, <laughs> why do you love terrorists? And two, why don't you, <laughs> why don't you support our one? troops? <laughs> Best two questions in the history of the world. <laughs> oh, my God. I love privacy. More than I love terrorists. <laughs> oh. And I love privacy more than whatever the other thing is you wanted to make sure I don't love very much. <laughs> Listen, uh, go back to the framers and the text. The framers wrote the 14th Amendment not to protect us from little things. They wrote the Fourth Amendment and said, government doesn't belong in your business. Mm-hmm. They need a good reason to search you. They need a good reason to seize your property. They need a good reason to get into these things. Here's what's not a good reason for doing my uh, looking at my library records. I might be a terrorist. False. I would add another thing. So after 9-11, it was Patriot Act. And then the authorization for the use of military force was passed mm-hmm. right after. That's still in effect. Right. Right. 18 years later, right. every single president, Democrat and Republican, are still using the same AUMF to justify force. And Holy and, moly, I might swear a third time. Right. And, and the House <laughs> – so the House recently passed something to, to repeal it, but it was more along partisan lines. I mean, I'm glad they did that, but it's not going to get through. You need – bipartisan support for this it's it's so disturbing that post 9-11 you know 
everybody was reaction reacting with emotions there. Those are still legislating our reality. It's, it's, Oh, it's not a mistake that, that Snowden is to many libertarians, almost heroic because what he did was expose what government was doing that diminished us as human beings. You're, you're part of a, a, a terrible state that doesn't respect your freedom to be free from surveillance constant and intrusive amen all right my foil hat is fully on no it's not here, here i i'm i i need to weigh in on this yeah one. absolutely so uh, you you made a good point for with younger generations specifically what the patriot act did or patriot act did in 2001 is i feel like it it pales in comparison to what uh, maybe not that that was a a precursor um a, a dress rehearsal to what people do freely now, especially younger generations. That information that the U.S. government would have had to have collected previously through clandestine means, um, people now put freely up on uh, Facebook, on the on the gram, gram on the gram, on the yeah. gram, on yeah. Twitter, um, <laughs> or any other website that links to those social networks or, or anything else. People just freely kind of give that stuff up. DNA tests. They, you, you buy it for, for $99 on black Friday and I'm going to learn where my ancestors came from. And that's not going to have any influence on what the government knows about me. What about the doggy test where you can get your doggy DNA? Is that the same thing? I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, sure. (laughs) See, Bill is not wearing his foil hat. I was going to say, (laughs) but I I mean, it's, I, I think it was at the time it was, it was exceptionally, uh, troublesome and, and problematic, but now even, like I, I remember that when that 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 first happened, and then Snowden and all that. Like it was yesterday, and it was it was really concerning, and people were severely and there were real conversations about it. about it, right? Yeah. But now this is just go, go ahead, Phil. <laughs> no, go ahead. Finish what you were saying. No, I I just I think that the way that uh, American culture has evolved in the shadow of that um, has has grown beyond. Uh, what the capabilities of of that are, and I think I still think it has the Patriot has the ability to, uh, or given the U.S. government the ability to link into what people do on those sets uh, social networks. But yeah, the the combination of the two and telling people that yeah, you should put all of your most intimate, secret, important information online um, is way more detrimental than what the original intent of the Patriot Act was. Um, the fact that the U.S. government now has access to that and the ability to go further than that and, and try and combine the two is is horrifying. Um, but I'm sorry, what were it, you going to say? It, it has Patriot in the name. That's true. So it's got to be good. I don't know why we're yeah, going to say almost to the extent this this is Republicans <laughs> focus grouping a name in the same way Democrats right. focus grouped quid pro quo. Well, let's call it the Patriot Act. Yeah. <laughs> and and let's let's do it at a time when there's national consensus that something terrible happened and that people like Kavanaugh might love terrorists. And so we need to surveil his library records to find out whether he's trying to build, I don't know what, a nuclear weapon or something like that. <laughs> right. No, but you're exactly right. This is just calling it that yeah. is everything that's wrong with government. And, and shame on the Democrats. You know, the only group that protested this libertarians and the squad. The squad was up in arms about this. AOC was mad. So, nice. so okay, good. Right, she's, she's won for about a hundred. Politics makes strange bedfellows. Right, it's true. Uh, that's the old yeah. saying. But 
anybody who says we've got to we've got to dial back on this sort of thing, yeah. I'm with them. Yeah, no, I'm I agree. With them. We, we're all this is a good way to end it. it. We got to do this yeah. every week. I feel like it just gets oh. it gets it gets widely in here. It's been a while since I've said this, Nick. This was fun. (laughs) (laughs) That might go down uh, right next to Deeply Problematic because I don't think it's been a while. It's every time. (laughs) This was fun. I need thumbs up t-shirts from Phil that just says I'll have another and one from Bill that just this has been fun. I want a t-shirt that says bad faith buffoonery. We're going to make that. Barstool politics. (laughs) You got to have a foil hat (laughs) on the merchandise page. If you don't have a foil hat on there, boy, shame on you. Made by hand in Naperville, Illinois. Um, anyways, we're glad to be back. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we have merch now. Uh, check out Teespring. Uh, look on social media to find the actual link. Uh, t-shirts, mugs, more t-shirts, uh, hoodies, things like that. We're going to be adding more as time Foil goes hats. on. Foil hats. <laughs> yes. We'll, we'll do those special. We'll, we'll do a giveaway of foil hats. Um, yeah, so definitely check that out. Just, uh, just provide I us miss. with all your provide us with all your contact information. Yes, please, <laughs> and we'll send you a foil hat. <laughs> if you could link all your social media accounts and your DNA profile, that would be great. <laughs> all right, that's perfect. <laughs> all right, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.